All right, good. So if you've got a Bible, please turn to our scripture reading, which is the book of James. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Now, this is our, our third sermon from the book of James. And we saw in the first week that the goal of the Christian life is to become mature. The goal of life for humans is to grow up and to become who you were made to be and to become your, the best version of yourself, your unrepeatable, unique self. And this can only happen as we are restored to our creator and as he heals us of all of our brokenness and all of our twistedness. And that's hard. It's hard because life is filled with trials. It's, it's filled with tough times. And, and the challenge of life is how do you go through the trials of life and become a better person and become more fully human, more truly yourself, more mature as a Christian and more closely related to God. And so we go through life, we go through these trials, and we've got all this baggage in us. We've got all of these kind of um, unhealthy habits and instincts and parts of us that God needs to heal and make whole. But then we go through tough times, and these tough times give us a chance for all that junk in us to show up and to come out. And so the book of James, it tells us we need wisdom. We need wisdom to go through the tough times so that the trials become stepping stones to maturity instead of um, a gateway into an even worse person, a worse, uh, your worse self. So that's what James does in the first two paragraphs. The goal of life is this kind of real maturity. Second paragraph, man, we need wisdom to do that. And then here this morning is the third paragraph. And in this, what he does here is he gives an example. And he picks the example that was the hardest trial, the people he was writing to, that they were going through. And that for them was money. Money was the biggest deal they were facing. So what he does in the third chapter is, in the third paragraph here, starting in verse 9, he says, look, this is how you can go through either the trial of not having enough money, poverty, or the trials that come with having a lot of money. And he picks the two extremes, and he says, here's what wisdom looks like in both of those cases. This is what a person who is really poor, a person who is really rich, this is how they go through those scenarios and become better, become more mature Christians, become more fully human, become who God made them to be. So let's take each of these. Let's the trial of poverty and the trial of wealth. Let's take each in turn. And he starts with the trial of poverty. James chapter 1 verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now he's talking there about the lowliness, the difficulty, the struggle of being poor. Now remember, this person writing this letter, this is James, the brother of Jesus, the daughter of Mary. And we heard Mary's contribution to Scripture read earlier from the Gospel, the Magnificat. And she talks about the same issue. She talks about the lowly being exalted. This was clearly a gift that Mary gave her sons. Because in Jesus' initial sermon, he deals with the same theme. Jesus and James both, when they start teaching, the first lesson they teach has to do with the poor. They grew up in that kind of world. This was a thing that they had been taught by their mother on how to reflect on. Here is James, 
the brother of Jesus, and he's writing this letter to churches spread out across the known world. Now here's the catch. Most of the people that he was writing to were not poor. And they also were not rich. Because there were actually only a few people that were rich at that time. And there were only a few people who were poor at that time. The great majority of people were neither poor nor rich. Most people had just enough to cover the basics of life. Now we think that's poor. That would be considered poor today. But 2,000 years ago, they weren't addicted to lifestyle magazines that made you want more, want more, want more. Most people were content to have enough. They didn't want to be poor. And they weren't driven to be rich because you really couldn't change your socioeconomic status very easily anyway. Most people had just enough to cover the basic necessities of life. They were peasants and artisans. Now, certainly by today's standards, that would make you poor. But again, they didn't aspire to wealth the way we do. Advertising is a modern thing. It hasn't always been soaking the world. So the majority of the people had enough, and that was all right. There was a category, though, called the poor. And that's who James picks to talk about. The poor, the truly poor, were people that weren't struggling with envy. They were people who were struggling with life and death. They were people who were in serious danger. They lacked the security that enough money to meet your basic needs provides. And so the poor, this was a particular group of people who lived dangerously in destitution. And the brutal reality is that for those people in this category, they typically only had three options for survival. Begging, crime, or selling yourself into slavery. That's the kind of people he's talking about. People that are so hard-pressed that in order for them to eat and feed their children, they could choose begging, criminal behavior, Or selling themselves into slavery. Clearly this is different than those who have enough money to meet their basic needs but just want more. This is real destitution. Now right above this group, the truly poor, right on the edge of that group was a whole bunch of people who were vulnerable. If there was a bad harvest or rent increased or taxes went up, they would land in the poor category very quickly. For example, the biggest example of this in the Bible is the day laborer. The the person employed one day at a time, paid minimum wages at the end of the day, which is just enough to maybe get enough to eat, living hand to mouth. All right, so when he says, let the lowly brother, this is who he's talking about. He's talking about people that are facing every day, am I going to steal, am I going to beg, or am I going to sell myself into slavery? That's the pressure this group is under. He's talking to this group of people, and he's saying to them, life is hard. You're facing a trial. You're facing a very difficult scenario. And he's saying, now, if that is the case for you, if your life is on the edge of survival like that, if you are in a dangerous place, not only is your body in danger, but your soul is in danger. Remember. What he's saying here is goes back to verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face 
Trials of various kinds. And here he picks a very difficult trial. The trial of watching your family die of starvation. Of you dying of starvation. And he's saying, look, in this moment, not only is your body threatened, but your soul is threatened. This kind of poverty can not only send you to the grave, it can damn your soul. It is so easy when you are treated as worthless and you're exploited, and you're overlooked, it is so easy to give in, and to become bitter, and to become ungrateful, and to become resentful. But what would it look like for you to face that kind of intense difficulty, that awful and painful and degrading place in society, what would it look like for you to be wise in that situation, So that you become a better person, a more mature person, a more fully human person. And he says what it would look like is that you would recognize in one very important way, you've got everything. Let the lowly person boast in his exaltation. What it looks like is that if you're a Christian in that situation then the the gospel teaches you that even though you are poor, even though you might die tomorrow from starvation, from destitution, you are in Christ and you're somebody. However poor you are, if you're a Christian, you have something that is so amazing, so exhilarating. Being a Christian is so incredible, you can brag about it. Even on your deathbed from starvation. Even in this terrible scenario, it is that good. Even as your child is dying from unjust systems and starvation, there is something about being a Christian that's so good, even in the face of that kind of difficulty, you can brag. You can boast. At the end of the day, if you are a slave, if you are begging on the street corner, If you are a Christian, you have it made. You've made it. You have an inheritance to look forward to. All that the father has for his son has been extended to those who are in Christ. It is an unfathomable prospect. But but Psalms 37 verse 11 tells us that when the end comes and Christ returns and all is made new, this Broken world is going to be reversed. And you're going to inherit the world. And you're not going to be begging on the street corner. When Jesus returns, there will be a great reversal. And you can brag about that. That's what Mary bragged about when she rejoiced in the coming of Christ. You will be sitting in power and luxury. And you have been forgiven for all of your terrible sins. And you have been adopted by the high king. And Jesus is your brother. And God the Father is going to give him the entire cosmos renewed and restored. And you get to share in that inheritance with him. And you are reconciled to God the creator. Now, clearly, there are many poor people who are not Christians. You can be poor and evil. 
You can be poor and wicked. You can be poor and ungodly. And this passage does not say simply because you're poor, you have it made. It's saying that if you are living in that kind of poverty and you have been exalted with Christ, then you have it made. At the end of the day, at the end of the worst day of your life, as you lie dying from starvation or from a beating, and you will soon pass from this old, tired, unjust world. If you are a Christian, things will be set right. And so you can rejoice. That whole reality, that's your exaltation. That's what you can brag about. When the world is looking down on you because of your poverty, remember that because of Christ you are rich. And so instead of growing bitter, you can grow joyful because in the sight of the only one that matters, you are highly regarded. Now listen, I know this is tough stuff. And it sounds really easy for a guy in my socioeconomic category to say this. It sounds really easy for Me, who've never been a slave, I've never had to beg on a street corner. I've never had to turn to crime. I know it can sound so easy and patronizing for me to say this, but get this. The guy who wrote this died from being beaten to death. That's how James died. And his brother Jesus died from being murdered through a trumped-up trial in an unjust system. He's writing this, and he's living right in the middle of this stuff. So you can discount me for saying it from a privileged position of the kind of easy middle class in North America today, but this was written by somebody living right on the edge, understanding this, having seen it already played out once, and it marked his life, and it marked his life all the way to his death, where he died in unjust circumstances from a beating Boasting of who he was in Christ. And you and I can become that kind of person too. James isn't just preaching. This is the world he lives in. This is the world the people he's writing to lives in. And this is the kind of maturity you and I can have in the face of this kind of trial or some other one. This way of looking at your life. If you are in utter poverty where your identity in Christ is, it trumps every loss you've ever had. This is what it means to be wise in poverty. This is the way of living in the trials of poverty that leads to real Christian maturity. Now, what about the trial of wealth? James chapter 1 verse 10. Let the rich... In his humiliate, boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now he takes a lot more time talking about what it means for a rich person to boast in his humiliation, because that's a lot harder to see than it is to see the trials of the poor. It's quite obvious the dangers facing the destitute, the poor. And we've seen how a Christian can be wise in the face of those dangers. But what are the dangers the wealthy face? And how can a Christian be wealthy and wise? Well, the Bible is full of warnings about the dangers of wealth. Being wealthy might not be dangerous to your body, but it is certainly dangerous to your soul. 
See, we, we tend to think that being poor is dangerous to your body, but somehow we, uh, we think there's some sort of romantic view of being poor when we read stuff like this. But he's saying there's nothing romantic about being that kind of poor. Nobody wants to be that. But he's also saying when it comes to being wealthy, yeah, your body might be okay, but your soul is in danger. One time, Jesus was trying to help a very wealthy young man get this. He was trying to get him to recognize that his wealth was a, a danger to his soul. The young man refused to accept what Jesus was saying. And if you're not familiar with this story in the Bible, it's called the rich young ruler. Or if you've forgotten where it's located, it's Matthew chapter 19. Starting in verse 16. As the rich guy walks off, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them, I'm telling you the truth. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, wealth is dangerous to your soul. And if you've got it, you're facing a really hard challenge to get into heaven. Then right after that, he uses an aphorism or a proverb to say the same thing again, but in poetic and graphic language. He says, look guys... (laughs) Uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. What does this mean? It means wealth is dangerous to your soul. How so? Well, the Bible talks about this a lot. And if you read the whole letter of James, which I hope you do, I, I hope that every week of this series, at one moment during the week, you sit down and you read through the whole book. It takes 15 to 20 minutes for the average reader speed to get through the whole book. And if you read through the whole book, you'll see James keeps coming back to the issue of wealth and poverty. And he identifies three basic dangers to wealth in this book. There's more in the Bible, but in this book, he brings up three. Number one, this comes in at the beginning of chapter two. He says, one of the problems is what with wealth is you get accustomed to first class. Uh, so there was a moment when my family, we lived in England, and I flew a ton. I flew so much that I got in the, like, really, the, the club at the airline for, like, Platinum Club. You fly, like, over 100,000 miles a year, which meant I frequently got upgraded to first class. And first class internationally beats the heck out of economy class. The problem with only getting in first class when you're bumped up because you can't afford it is those moments where you don't get bumped up. You resent the little people that you have to sit with. And you want them to know that you, you often ride in first class, but there was a snafu, and now you're back here with the commoners. I know this from my own experience. It is really weird how that kind of stuff can get triggered in you. And that's kind of a funny little joke. But one of the problems with wealth is that you grow a sense of self-importance, that you don't grow when your life is based on slavery or begging or crime. And you suddenly begin to think that you are better than other people. And over and over the Bible teaches us that our relationship with God is fundamentally connected to our relationship with other people. And to be right with God, you have to see everybody as equal to you. And wealth makes that difficult. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And wealth has a way of making that difficult. The second thing that James says makes wealth dangerous to your soul. And this comes up also in chapter 2 verse 7. You can become the kind of person who even though you do go to church. 
you are not really a Christian. And you are not really committed to Jesus. And Jesus is not really the deepest identity. You're a Christian because you're a part of civil religion. This issue shows up again in chapter 4, verse 13, where we see the security that comes from wealth and power. It can make you presumptuous, that you're okay, that you don't need God, that you don't really need Jesus to save you and sustain you because you don't ever have to really think about how much you need God. You are not the kind of person who has given your single-minded radical loyalty and devotion to Jesus because that's radical and when you treat Jesus that way that is dangerous to your soul and wealth makes you need Jesus just a little less some of you who who endured a very tough season in health or some sort of thing, know what it means to need God and to call out for him. And then when it's not like that, it grows so easy to not need him. And wealth has a way of triggering that kind of phenomenon. The third danger that James brings up is also in chapter 2, verse 6, and in chapter 5. One of the ways that wealth can damn you is that with wealth, it becomes very easy to exploit the poor. With wealth comes power, and with power comes more wealth. And it is easy to justify unethical treatments of others by the fact that the law allows it. There are many legal things that are unethical and will damn you. It can be easy to justify the unethical treatment of others when your place in life affirms that or... When you can't see those that are being exploited. And you don't even know that you're exploiting them. And, and this is really complicated for us in our world today. This, the increasing globalization of the unrestrained market economy. Along with the dominance of transnational corporations. And the crippling burden of debt on the developing world. And the spreading of consumerism from the west to the east and the developing world. All of this can make it really difficult to see how grossly inequitable is the global economic system even for those of us of modest affluence. And it can be difficult to see the ecological destruction being wrought by the overconsumption of those of us who have been brainwashed that enough is not enough. And this is something we've really got to work on. So if you are wealthy, it is critical that you reflect on three things. How do you acquire your wealth? How do you use your wealth? And what place does your wealth hold in your heart? So if you're poor, be wise and be on guard against the bitterness and the lack of gratitude and the resentment that can strap, trap your soul. And if you're wealthy, be wise and be on guard against the arrogance and the lack of dependence on Jesus and the exploitation of others. You can be poor and godly, but it is very hard. It's very hard. To be godly when your life is on the line in your poverty. You can be rich and be godly, but it is very hard. It is very hard to resist the entrapments of wealth. It is not easy 
It's a lot easier, to be honest, for the, the great majority of folks who have neither wealth nor poverty. But if you find yourself in either of these extremes, God is teaching you here in James how you can go through the trial of your wealth or your poverty and become godly. Now, I've talked about how to become a mature Christian when you're facing trials of poverty. But how do you become a mature Christian when you're facing these trials I just named with wealth? Notice what it says. The way you become mature is you boast in your humiliation. That's the way. The way you become mature in poverty is you learn to see your exaltation. You learn to see that no matter what everything is telling you in Christ, amazing. The way to become mature with wealth is to learn to see no matter what everybody is telling you, you're in trouble. Your humiliation. What does it mean to boast in your humiliation? It means you acknowledge before God that your wealth is as powerful as a flower in a field is before the sun when a scorching heat comes through. It means you acknowledge that before God, however rich you are, you are spiritually bankrupt. Your money is deceiving you. It makes you think that you're better than others, that you must be okay, that you are secure. But the wise person who's wealthy looks at all of his success and all of her um, accumulated material goods and knows that deep in your heart, you don't have a chance unless God has mercy, that your only chance in life is God being generous, not your discipline, not your achievement, not your hard work, not your intelligence. Spiritually, you're going to be okay only if God is merciful. And you need his mercy. And you need a spiritual handout. Just like the beggar on the corner needs a dollar. And spiritually, you stink just as much as the beggar who doesn't get to take a shower. And your spiritual bank account is just as non-existent as his bank account. You need a handout. And spiritually speaking, you need to go to God for charity, for forgiveness and acceptance and grace and mercy. This is what it means to be a wise, wealthy person. It means you boast in that fact. You, you brag about how much you need God, not how big your bank account is. The challenge for the poor person is to see through the pain and suffering to the wealth in Christ. They, that they are forgiven in heirs of Christ. The challenge for the rich person is to see through the success and the possessions to the fact that God is not impressed. That you have sins and you're doomed unless God forgives you and heals you of your pride and materialism and try as hard as you can to stop making money on the backs of the poor. I don't know if it's even possible in today's society. And to know this and to bring this before God and when you do this, that is what you can boast in. You can boast in your real humiliation that the gospel has shown you just how much you really need God, that you depend on God, and your boast is in Christ. It is a sign of good health when a wealthy Christian enjoys reflecting on how they are nothing without Jesus. It's a sign of good health when a poor Christian rejoices in reflecting on how rich they are in Christ. When the wealthy person can laugh at the confidence the world puts in their assets. Knowing that the only solid permanent thing in their life 
is the love of God shown in Christ. All right, so what about you? Each one of us needs to consider how this works out in our own lives. We need to think about our own circumstances. Does your situation, your life, your circumstances, does it tend to lead you to feel shame or self-importance? Or maybe you, need, you tend to veer between the two, depending on the situation. The poor needs to remember their high position, that they've been lifted up by the gospel. The rich needs to remember their low position, that they have been humbled by the gospel. The poor need to reflect the certainty of heaven. The rich need to reflect on the transience of earth. And it is God's estimation that counts and contradicts the world's way of evaluating this stuff. Now, over the last several weeks, we've seen that the most valuable thing in the world, no matter who you are, no matter how old or young or rich or poor or in the middle, the single most valuable thing is for you to become a full human, a mature Christian, to have a relationship with God that is deep and lacking in nothing. That's the only way to be your true self. It's the only way to truly be at rest. And you can have that. James is telling us that is not something that you just have to wait until you die to get. You can actually become mature. You can actually grow up. You can actually get a lot better. To do this, you have to jump all in. You have to be fully committed to God. You have to give Him your whole heart. You have to stop being double-minded. You have to stop saying you believe in God but living like you don't. You have to respond to God's love with your whole heart, with single-minded devotion and loyalty. And this is what the poor who are wise and the wealthy who are wise have done. They've both taken their example from the poor. See, the poor person shows us what it's like to know you're not better than anybody. What it's like to totally depend on God. To give God your wholehearted devotion and loyalty. To not take advantage of people because you don't have the power to take advantage of them. The gift of knowing your identity is only in God's evaluation. See, the poor person needs to learn from the wealthy that that's what they're really like in heaven. And the wealthy person needs to learn from the poor that that's what they're really like on earth. And many of you have seen these gifts beautifully displayed in wealthy people you know and in poor people you know. It's as we learn to take pride in our gospel-given position that we can do verse 12. We can stand the test. This is how you can steer a, steer a straight path to the goal of maturity. Being wise in our poverty, being wise in our wealth, this is one way you express love to God. And it's one way you learn how to love God. And as we continue doing this, as we get better and better at seeing ourselves as shaped by the matchless worth of being made more like Christ, we will learn to look forward with greater anticipation to the day when this is all done. When the trials are over, when they've come to an end. And when the only thing weighing us down will be the crown of life. Which God will place on the heads of everyone who treasures him. Let's pray.